Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It can be found on page 1021 in your Black Pew Bible. 1 John 2, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you're just joining us, we are rolling through 1 John, and we're going to roll through 1 John and 2nd and 3rd John in a series that's going to last, oh, uh, two, until the last two weeks after Easter. And thus far in this text, we've seen mostly definitions, descriptions, and explanations from the Apostle John. Up to this point, we've been able to draw out some kind of obvious exhortations or kind of obvious implications and instructions, but explicit imperatives have been missing from our first three weeks in this book. And John's implied kind of imperatives only work if we assume certain positions for the reader. For, for instance, what I'm trying to get at is that when John says, if we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Well, it's natural to assume that he's writing to people who want to practice the truth, that he's writing to people who desire to be truthful and honest and to uh, maintain their own integrity. And that's good because I hope that we're that kind of audience as well. Right? So when we read, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that only matters to us if we know that we need to be forgiven. And John assumes some values when he lines out these definitions and descriptions. And now, in this room, I, I don't know where everybody is. I don't know where you would find yourself this morning. I don't know everybody's story. I don't know if you've ever lived in a place of conscious darkness. I don't know if you've ever stared at the light in the face, but then turned and jumped into darkness instead. I don't know how many of us know what it feels like to embrace self-deception on purpose. I don't know how many of us have kept hidden and secret sin in the dark, knowing full well that it was in the dark and that nobody had a clue. I don't know who's hiding from the light right now, but I do know what it feels like to live that way. I know the twisted feeling in your soul that happens when you live with two different faces. 
I know the sour feeling in your stomach that you have to live with when you live life ignoring a guilty conscience. I know the kind of lies that you have to tell yourself over and over and over and over again just so that you're able to smile. I know what it feels like to have joy and laughter exist always with this kind of, in this kind of constant subterranean sense of dread underneath. I know the darkness that John's talking about, and not in theory, but in real life, personally. And John describes it well for us so that we can avoid it and run from it and stay away from it, stay away from the hooks of sinful desires that exist in the darkness. But he hasn't provided his readers with an explicit directive yet, and that changes in our text today. In our text this morning, John's going to shift and give us the first kind of clear, concise imperative. John gives a concise command, and then he breaks down the object of his command into three different categories for us. So before we get to the command from John, in a way, I want us to start at the end of our text and think about how if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of God. The overwhelming, powerful love of God is all over this text, and yet it isn't mentioned explicitly except for if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you, okay? But I want to help us not love the world. I want to help us not love the world, and that doesn't work by trying, trying really, 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 really hard to not love the world. It works by increasing your love for God such that love for the world is expelled, is pushed out, is diminished and shrunk in your life and in your heart and in your soul. And so that's what I long for the Spirit of God to do for us today. So as I walk through this text, I'm gonna do it in three movements. The first one is that the love of God establishes for us a, a sturdy foundation to stand on. The second one is that the love of God is incompatible with love for the world. And the third one is that the love of God endures forever. I'm going to pray before I go any further. Would you all bow your heads with me and pray with me and for me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, would you intensify our devotion? Would you intensify our experience of your love for us? Would you increase dramatically in our hearts our affection for you and what you have done in our lives, what you do in the world how you have demonstrated your love for us. Would you intensify and increase that reality in our souls such that it pushes out worldly desire? It it exposes the meager offerings of the world compared to what you offer us. Would you do that in our hearts this morning By the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the love of God establishes our foundation. 
From verse 12 to 14, we see a threefold structure repeated twice. So look at it with me in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then again, in verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So we need to ask what, who are these people and what's happening in this section of the letter? And for my focus, I want us to spend time on the fact that the theological topics represented here, the theological realities that are asserted in these verses, they, they provide something for us. They're not just something to like think about or, or look at and feel good about ourselves. They provide something that you need. They provide the footing that we need to obey John's command later in this text. The statements in these verses reinforce the reality of our forgiveness. It reinforces the reality of our salvation and our sonship and your power to fight against sin and evil in the world. And I say that all because these enormous and glorious realities that the writer names are bought through God's love first. They're bought for us First, all these monstrous blessings that are attributed to little children and fathers and young men, those blessings come to them because God loved them. God's love and his faithfulness to us is, is a reliable and sturdy foundation. Our foundation is not our own strength. Our foundation is not our own measly efforts. Our foundation is not our own feeble attempts to, to get it right in life. God's love, God's grace, God's covenant commitment to us are what we stand on. Not our own strength, not our own schemes or strategies, not our own self-worth, not our own gifts or efforts. God's action, God's initiative towards us, God's provision, God's steadfast love are what make for sturdy and stable footing for you and me as we face and we will face all kinds of stuff from the world. John says, little children, fathers, and young men, the scholars that I read are fairly split on whether or not these distinctions are a reference to biological realities or a reference to spiritual realities. And what I mean by that is you, you ask, is John talking about the natural world and natural maturity, or is he talking about the spiritual world and spiritual maturity? And it's not, it wasn't a consensus either way, but for our purposes, we don't have to be completely certain. I do find myself more convinced by arguments for natural maturity than spiritual, but the thought that he's referencing a spirit, the spiritual maturity of these believers isn't heretical. It also fits and makes sense, and there's good arguments for that. But our obedience, right, our listening to what's being said in this text, our applying it to our lives doesn't depend on figuring that out. Like one pastor says, don't, don't skip over these verses if you don't happen to be in one of those groups. What's true for them is true for all believers. And that's important because I don't want us to, to, to set ourselves in one category and think that there's certain things in this text that don't apply to us. It all applies to all of us. 
And that also applies to young women and mothers in the room. This text is for all of us to learn and apply to our lives. But one thing that scholars seem to agree on is that when he says little children, this is a broad term of endearment. This is a term of affection for these people. Not, not for a specific age or a specific level of maturity. John uses this phrase, and he uses this phrase throughout the book. He uses it multiple times to address his audience broadly with pastoral, fatherly affection. So this is for everyone explicitly. He starts with everyone and he says to them, your sins are forgiven for his namesake and you know the father. That is foundational. You need to know as a follower of Christ that your sins are forgiven because of Jesus and you know the father. Jesus forgives and Jesus is the only way to the father. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, for forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. So as the Lord has forgiven us, we are to forgive. That's foundational. You've been forgiven. That's a weighty, steadying, sturdy reality in your life. It's accomplished for you. And the love of God makes that possible. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Christ came to die for our sin. Relishing that, resting in that, standing on that, or sitting underneath the weight of that is crucial for us to be the kind of sturdy Christians that aren't tempted by loves from the world, by desires of the flesh, or, or all the different temptations that surround us that compete for our allegiance and compete for our affection. The world can't forgive you of your sins, right? That matters, that matters. Jesus didn't only forgive you, it's through Jesus that you can know the Father. In John's gospel, Philip says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, show us the Father. Now, Jesus, in that moment, doesn't go, oh, whoops, yeah, why haven't I done that yet? Let me, let me just take a second and show you the Father. He says, Philip, how long have you been with me and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. And that isn't ancillary. That isn't supplemental. It isn't extra. It's foundational. It's a truth that you can build on. Next, John addresses fathers, and he says that you know him who is from the beginning. That phrase is used earlier in chapter 1, verse 1, and it's a reference to Jesus. Him who is from the beginning is a reference to Jesus. I want us to understand how the love of the world is overshadowed by the love of God. So we have to ask, how does our knowledge of Christ help us understand love and knowledge of the Father? In Ephesians 3.14, Paul prays for the Ephesian church. And he says, I'm on my knees praying for you. I'm praying 
desperately. I'm praying hard. I'm praying on my knees that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you're a believer in this room, you know him who's from the beginning. You know Christ and his love surpasses knowledge. Yes. Christians in the room, man, hey, there is nothing broader. There is nothing longer there is nothing deeper and nothing higher than the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's who you know. Him who's from the beginning. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's who you know. That's who you know. That's how John encourages these fathers. But he goes on and he also encourages the young men and he says to them, you've overcome the evil one and God's word abides in you. One, one author says it this way. He says, there's no doubt in my mind that our strength and our ability to defeat the evil one has a twofold source. One is the work of Christ. The other is the word of God abiding in us. How, how do we overcome evil through Christ? And I want to highlight the reality that the love of God is displayed most vividly, most vibrantly, most radiantly and intensely through the cross of Christ. What shall we say then to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then again, Romans 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's this reality to the death of Christ that shouts and shows and demonstrates the love of God for the believer that should have the impact of pushing and shoving and removing other loves that take up space in our hearts. There's this deep and powerful, life-changing love of God poured out in the crucifixion. And at the same time, there's this victorious, triumphant reality happening during the, the crucifixion as well. In Christ, we have both of those. 
In Colossians 2.15, it says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. God disarmed and dealt the decisive blow to sin and wickedness and evil, all of it in the world forever at the cross of Christ. In Hebrews 2.14, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, that through death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's you and me. That's you and me. Through death, Christ overcame death, and he overcame evil. And through his death, he freed us from lifelong slavery. That's how we've overcome the evil one, through Christ's work on our behalf. These realities are foundational. They're sturdy. They're, 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 uh, they're strong corners to the foundation that you have, that you can stand on and fight the temptation to return God's love for, with, with, with idolatry or covetousness. So before we move on, I want to I rapid fire some of what's been done for us, some of what John is listing for us before he gives us a command to stop loving the world or to not love the world. Through Christ, our sins are forgiven. Through Christ, we can know the Father. We know Christ, the person who was from the beginning. And through Christ, we've overcome the the evil one. That makes for stable footing. The love of God makes for secure and strong foundations in your life by forgiving sin, by bringing us to the Father, by giving us knowledge of Christ, and by giving us the power to overcome evil. So we ask ourselves, why would we be tempted to love the world at all? which takes me to my second movement this morning. The love of God is incompatible with love for the world. Starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, these three specific categories Those are John's way of explaining to us what it looks like to love the world. To live for your lusts is love for the world. To live for your temporary desires is love for the world. To live for love of your stuff is love of the world. So quickly, I want us to define world as John's using it here. And then I want to talk about each of these three different desires. First, John uses the Greek word cosmos here and in other places in the New Testament. And John uses it in more than one way. That shouldn't surprise us because because the Bible, like real life, uses words in more than one way depending on the context. For instance, Sometimes you should love the world, right? Sometimes we shouldn't love the world. God loved the world, and he loved the world in a way that we also should have affection for the world and compassion for the world. Jesus is our propitiation and the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. 
There are times when world is referring to people and Christians are obligated and instructed to love everybody, even our enemies, right? So that can't be what John's talking about here. But then again, in other places in the scriptures, you have places like James 4.4, where we read that a friend of the world is an enemy of God. That's the type of world that we're dealing with in our text this morning. That's the type of meaning in our text this morning. So let me give, let me give a couple different um, definitions for what world means as it's being used here. Colin Cruz, in his commentary, says, there can be no doubt in the present context World means worldly attitudes or values that are opposed to God. Or Robert Yarbrough in his commentary says, John's indisputable point to his readers is that much of what surrounds them insofar as it belongs to the world is not from the Father, it's rather from the world. More specifically, the world is characterized by an unholy trinity of what the body hankers for and the eyes itch to see and people toil to acquire. And this toxic mix poisons and destroys, end quote. The world, as it is used right here in the scriptures, is referring to the structures and inertia of fallen humanity that is hostile to God and hostile to God's purposes. So let's engage these descriptions of the world and descriptions of what it looks like to love the world and seek to identify them in our own lives and then make a dogged commitment to kill them and fight against them by the power of the Holy Spirit. First, we should know also that this word desire that's used in this text isn't necessarily negative. It's a neutral word. You can have good desires and you can have bad desires. But because human beings are fundamentally desiring beings, we must either live loving the world as a slave to our desires or live loving God as a steward of our desires. Because human beings are fundamentally desiring beings, we must either live loving the world as a slave to our desires and our lusts or live loving God as a master over our desires or a steward of our desires. We have three different objects of desire here, but the heart activity looks the same in every single situation. In the 10th commandment, Deuteronomy uh, 5.21 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or, make his, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. And Paul says in Colossians 3.5 that covetousness, covetousness is idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. Coveting and desiring are the same heart activity. The same thing is going on inside of us, but something distinguishes them. So what makes them different? Two things that we can see that make them different are that if you desire something that's prohibited because it doesn't belong to you, that's sin. And if you desire something that isn't prohibited, it's lawful for you to desire, but you desire it too much, that's sin. 
So we sin when we desire, when we sin by the object of the desire, or we sin by the degree of the desire. We sin when we desire, when we desire, when we sin by the object, something that's been off limits, said to be off limits to us, the object of the desire, or by the degree of the desire. Take gluttony, for instance. This is a sin, gluttony is a sin of degree. It's a, it's a sin that is a desire by degree, not because of its object, okay? Food's good, but too much food is bad. It's a lust of the flesh, a desire of the flesh. The word flesh here is about our physical appetites. It's being ruled by our physical appetites, our physical compulsions, and your fleshly desires. Things like illicit sexual activity fall into this category, but not only that, food, drugs, alcohol, comfort, physical pleasures of any kind. Now, within those pleasures, some are clearly off limits in the scriptures and some are allowed as long as they don't become inordinate, as long as they don't take the place of God in our lives, as long as they don't become idolatrous and coveting. It's okay to crave food, but it's not okay to worship food. And we worship food when we want it to do things for us that only God can do and only God is supposed to do. Sex with our spouse is right and good, but an inordinate preoccupation with sex, even with our spouse, is not good. Being propelled or compelled or controlled by our appetites is sinful. It's sinful. It's why Paul says in Philippians 3.18 that their God is their stomach. That's what he means. That's the lust, the desire, the allegiance to and submission to the flesh and the fleshly desires that, that, uh, that the, the lust of the flesh is getting at here in John's, in John's uh, letter. And that kind of desire, that kind of desire and that degree of sort of love and affection and allegiance to the flesh is incongruent with love for God. And John doesn't only talk about our physical appetites. He also talks about the desires of the eyes. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it's better for you to lose an eye than your whole body be thrown into hell. Our eyes are the window to our purity. Jesus also said that if the eye is healthy, the whole body is healthy. We can't fill our eyes with filth and then expect to be clean inside our hearts. We can't use our eyeballs to hunt with a covetous heart and then expect to be clean on the inside. Maybe by shopping online until two or three or four o'clock in the morning or maybe searching endlessly for a dream home that we'll never have the money to afford or staring at someone else's kids or someone else's wife or someone else's possessions and feeling this sort of deep, envious longing for those things. That's worldly. It's loving the world and it's incompatible with loving God. And in some cases, 
In some cases, what we see, what we witness is something illicit or something explicit, but just witnessing it itself isn't necessarily a sin. It becomes sinful when we drink in that illicit image with our gaze. The entire marketing industry is run well by this truth. It's what savvy marketing professionals already know. Sex sells is a slogan because it works. Now, it isn't illicit or sinful to to have a healthy appreciation or enjoy your friend's home. It isn't sinful to to give back uh, uh, gratitude and thanks to God for something that he's given to you. But it is sinful to be preoccupied and pining over it and obsessing over it and being discontent about whatever God has handed you instead. We, we spend our heart and our emotions just wanting and longing and yearning for things that we don't have instead of embracing what God's given us with contentment and thankfulness. And that really makes you think about things like social media and Instagram just a little bit differently. Scrolling through perfect pictures of pretty people that you might never know Handsome, pretty, rich, put together people with shiny lives and with zero problems. It makes you wonder how it can be good for your soul to just flip and scroll through that for hours and hours and hours and hours. Because dangling enticements to sin in front of our face all day long isn't good for our heart. It's not good for our heart. It's sinful to yearn for other people's stuff or other people's lives. And it's sinful to want those things so that you can prop yourself up or impress other people or turn heads. That's the pride in possessions. This third category is about security and self-reliance and presumption and self-sufficiency. Do the things you own make you feel so good about yourself that you can just forget about God or forget about what he requires of us? Do you find yourself basking in the glow of the life that you've built for yourself? If you're tempted to do that, you need to be reminded that it is God who sets up kings and it is God who removes kings. Their heart is like a stream of water in his hand. The pride of life is the pride that tempts you to believe that you could make any one of the blessings in your life happen on your own, on your own, your kids, maybe your kids, good behavior, your car, your house, maybe your second house, your lawn, your 401k, your investment portfolio, portfolio, your very health. All of it exists because of the most brilliant and brightest thing in the universe, sheer unmerited grace. Remember, this is about our own sin first. We tend to judge others when we talk about things like, or certain sins, sins like envy or jealousy, sins like coveting. Those make it easy for us to judge other people and measure ourselves against them, kind of compare ourselves to them and then judge them. So I just want to remind us this morning when we're talking about sin, that the truth is, is that we have, we have way more in common with whoever the person is that we judge the most than we do with the holiness of Jesus Christ. Yes. 
We have way more in common with whoever it is that you use to make yourself feel better about yourself than we do with the holiness of Jesus. And if you lined up all of us, all of our sin, all of us are in the same bucket over here and Jesus is in a bucket all by himself. So I wanna ask us a couple questions this morning just to help us apply this text to our lives. And these, these, these questions are drawn in large part from a teacher and an author named David Pallison. At one point in his career, he assembled a list of helpful questions that aim at helping you uncover what is the thing in your life that you love the most. What is the thing? How do we know when our desires are too much or over the top? And here are a few questions that can help, help you get started on figuring it out. <coughs> if you never if you never get the thing that you are longing for, can God still be good? If you never get what you're longing for, can you still be a happy, loving person to other people? If you got the thing that you ache for and lost it, how devastated would you be? Could you still worship God? What are you most afraid of losing? In real time, see if any of your desires creep into areas of coveting or desires that are inordinate, which is to say, idolatrous. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. We're complex, complicated people. Our desires are all tangled up inside of us. But if you find yourself this morning holding God hostage, saying, unless you do this, I'm out. If you find yourself there, that desire has trapped you. It has made you a slave. And we're in church, I get it. I know that a lot of what we want and desire are actually really good things in this life. Not necessarily evil things. Some of us find ourselves in a spot where we are desiring evil things more overt, kind of obvious darkness, like illicit sexual activity or alcohol or pills, whatever it is. And many of us are holding God hostage with good things that we want in our lives. Some of us covet safety and we are constantly preoccupied with the safety of our children. Some of us lust for security. We desire it above all else. Some of us want deeply in a way that distracts us from God, want deeply to have a good reputation in this life. And those aren't bad things in and of themselves. Covetous desires are tricky. They're tricky. They require vigilance, excessive desires, undue desires, unreasonable desires, unrestrained desires, exorbitant and extreme desires. These are the desires that take your love and assign it to something other than God. Loving physical pleasure, loving the glitter and the glam of Hollywood gossip magazines, the love of acquiring status and acquiring the kind of stuff that turns heads, all of those loves are incompatible with and war against your love for God. But all that opposes God, 
Everything that opposes God, these lusts, these desires, everything that sets itself up as a rival to God, it doesn't only have to be, it doesn't only have to be a sinful desire that you're longing for. Everything that's opposed to God and everything that tries to take his place as king and preeminent in the universe, all of it's passing away. But the love of God endures forever. Forever. And that brings me to my final movement. The love of God endures forever. Jesus said, as the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandment and I abide in his love. See, God's love endures forever. So don't love the world that's fleeting that's temporary, that's like a vapor, that's going to disappear before you know it. And the reason you don't want to love the world right here, um, one reason you don't, you don't want to love the world that I, want to, that I long for you to realize this morning is that, frankly, it's a bad deal. It's a bad deal. You're being ripped off. You're being ripped off. The picture here is don't be duped. Don't be fooled. Don't be a sucker. Don't listen to the promises of the world because the world can't keep its promises. It writes checks you cannot cash. There's no money in the bank. But guess what? God never runs out of money. His love never ends in quantity and in consistency. It never goes away. God offers us something way, way, way better than anything that the world could ever offer us. You remember when Jesus was in the wilderness and the devil came to him and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, all the kingdoms of the earth, and he was able to just go, no, that's nothing. That's, I, I, I can stand against that with the word of God. I can stand against that because I know, I know. I can throw all of that away for abiding with the Father. God offers us something way, way, way better. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever and the moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever and on and on and on and on and on and every single blessing in your life Christian is so you can sing that song and mean it mean it all the way to the bottom that reality is our defense against getting caught up in love for worldly things Give thanks to God who gave me this apartment for his steadfast love endures forever. He gave me this car. His steadfast love endures forever. He gave me this forgiveness. His steadfast love endures forever. He might have given me this struggle. His steadfast love endures forever. This family, this mercy, this grace, our very adoption as sons into the family of God for his steadfast love endures. It endures forever. And if that refrain with compassion in my guts, if that refrain for you is sour this morning, 
my heart goes out to you and we have work to do. Whoever does the will of God abides forever, but the world and its desires are passing away. In our lives, everything that exists in rebellion to God and everything that exists in a state of ignoring God, everything that exists without giving credit and glory to God, all of it's passing away. Our desires for power or prestige or position or pedigree, all of it is passing away. So this morning we get the opportunity to test ourselves and to inquire in our own hearts if our love for God doesn't shrink every love that you have in your life for every single thing in your life, even the things in your life that are good for you. If it doesn't shrink all the other loves in your life, then your loves are lopsided. They're off. And God in his mercy may expose that to you so that you can repent and turn and embrace him instead. He's what you need most. He's the only thing that can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. So the the exhortation this morning is run to him and away from these other desires by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to learn the hard way. We don't want him to have to break our hands in order to let us let go of desires for things other than him. And, I, and like I said, I don't know what kind of darkness or pain that you've walked in necessarily. I don't know what lusts or desires tempt you the most, but I know, I know they are lying to you. I know the love of God in Christ offers you a sturdy foundation. I know that you can abandon your love for the world because it's passing away right now. But the love of God, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. So God, we ask you to do that this morning. Spirit of the living God, would you work in our hearts? Would you convict us right now? Put your finger right on it. Would you set us free? Would you give us that kind of understanding and experience of your love? And you know what? We're not guiltless here. Help us repent for places where we don't value the most valuable thing in the universe. Help us change. Help us turn away from our ho-hum attitudes about our own salvation and forgiveness for sin and what you've done in our lives and what you're doing in the world and your glory apart from anything you've ever done for us. Would you help us to turn from that? Would you help us to embrace that? Would you increase our capacity to embrace it and love it and delight in it? Would you? Would you so fill our hearts with your love that it does push out the other, other loves that compete for that space. Increase and intensify our affection for you, our obsession with you. Would you fill our minds, fill our thoughts, give us courage to, to, to walk that out. Give us courage to live like we believe that. Live like we love that way. Would you do that this morning? Just a little bit more. Convict us and change us. Humble us and set us free, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.